If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. Chapter 6. Her first evening on the Albatross, Corwin dined with the captain and his mates. The nine men who squeezed into the small disorganized cabin did not deign to offer her conversation so dinner was an uncomfortable affair. Prior to beginning the meal, those gathered were subjected to an endless prayer to a demanding god. It castigated those assembled for whoring, drinking, and gambling below decks and promised them eternal damnation for their infernal disobedience and laziness. Corwin had ample time to pray not every meal came with such a sermon. On deck Corwin had seen a cage filled with chickens, another with rabbits, and a straw-strewn pen containing a sow and her piglets. The lucky few invited to the captain's mess shared a pair of freshly roasted hens that were swiftly picked to the bone, chewy biscuits called hardtack, and big mugs of watered rum. As she ate Corwin tried to ignore the sidelong glances from the men around her, the captain's sullen glare, and the grimaces the men exchanged with one another when they thought she wasn't looking. After choking down some hardtack dipped in rum and a chicken leg, Corwin returned to her cabin where she found her maid happily consuming some of the apples and cheese Christina had given them in a little chest. Thank God neither of them had to rely on the albatross for their only sustenance. As the first few days of the voyage passed, Corwin had time to notice the ship did not have an iron hand at the helm. Though the vessel was adequately manned, the rigging and sails were in bad repair, the deck was cluttered, and her one expedition to the hold was terminated abruptly when she saw hundreds of rats scurrying along the beams and heard water rolling far below in the darkness. Corwin took great comfort in the array of ships she could see along the horizon whenever she ventured on deck. If this ship showed any sign of distress she knew Ben was near enough to effect a rescue. Margaret, her traveling companion, also worked hard to reassure her. My broad James once sailed a ship with so many oars that the cap'n himself had to bail a shift each day. We'll make port safe and sound my lady. You wait and see. Margaret picked up Corwin's cloak from her bunk and hung it on a hook on the back of the door. Then she sat on her own bed, feet extended off the edge. Their windowless cabin was just large enough for two narrow cots three feet apart and their combined stack of trunks. Since both Corwin and Margaret could read, they spent their days buried in books and taking turns on deck. I suppose the crew will hardly let the ship sink merely to spite me, said Corwin. Oh no, milady. I never knew a seaman who did not have a true horror of the sea. Tis shipwreck and drowning they fear or all things. Most can nay swim. My ma, she taught us all but these like wood flounder in the water like fish on dry land. How on earth can that be? Asked Corwin in astonishment. She too had learned to swim as a child. Her brothers had taught her as they had taught her to ride. She thought it was a skill everyone mastered. 
How could a man climb aboard a boat without knowing how to survive a fall into the water? No one teaches them Milady and tis not a thing comes natural. Many see no need. They have a ship to sail and if they fall off they be good as dead. Would any master turn hard about to find them? Margaret spoke so confidently, so contentedly, that Corwin found her a marvel. Nothing seemed to disquiet the girl. She feared no evil in the world. Everything, to Margaret's mind, happened exactly as it should. She had seen the listing Christina had put in the Times for a companion to travel to Virginia just days after receiving a letter from her elder brother inviting her to come to the colonies to tend his house. She took this as a sign that God himself was watching over her. Her unshakable Methodist faith, learned at her mother's knee, was astonishing. By the end of the first week Margaret had Corwin wondering if perhaps all was exactly as it should be. She had no interest in London men, had envied Ben his journey to a new world, and what had she truly lost in the last few weeks when all was said and done. Her lands, attended by servants who had loved and cared for her since birth, were safe and sound. She could sail home and live a life unburdened by the affairs of court in a year or two. So perhaps this was the grand adventure she had prayed for time and again. Perhaps Providence had worked through two very dangerous men to give her her heart's desire. The good weather held for five days into the ship's second week. The wind blew cold and strong hour after hour, filling the sails and driving the ship onward at an immense rate. The sun, bright despite the occasional cloud that appeared along the edge of the sea, danced on the deep green water. At night the moon beamed in the sky and sparkled on the sea. Stars gleamed like diamonds overhead, painting a road across the sky from east to west. But the next day, Corwin went above to find the skies filled with ominous clouds, and the wind so hard upon the sails that they were being trimmed lest the masts snap from the pressure. She could see only one ship on the horizon and felt sure Ben must be sailing hard to remain close by even as the rising storm tried to drive them apart. From the safety of the companionway she watched Croom and Scurry from one end of the ship to the other, sensed their urgency and marveled at how they scaled the masts and swang from the ropes. She saw them do battle with lashing sails that writhed like monsters in the wind and wondered why they did not fall as the ship leapt and lurched beneath them. By noon, both watches had been called to man the ship, half-serving topside to keep the sails high and stow all the gear that rolled around the deck. Half below to secure the shifting hold and to aid in the bailing of seawater that leaked through widening seams in the hull. Bucket after bucket of bilge water was brought up and dumped over the side in order to keep the ship riding high in the water. With all the turmoil on deck, Corwin decided to remain in the cabin rather than venture up again. She did not like the way the ship twisted and turned beneath her feet or the panic she thought she saw in the crew. Margaret, on the other hand, declared herself quite at home in the rough weather. She went up in the afternoon to watch the men work, and even played a role in butchering hens, hogs, and rabbits alongside the ship's cook. The animals, left caged on deck, had died in waves that washed over them again and again. Rather than waste the meat, the cook was swiftly salting it and laying it by for later in the voyage. Margaret returned at dusk, wet to the bone, bloodied, and enervated from all the excitement. The cook says they'll keep sails raised long as they can. They hope to outrun the worst of the storm. If it gets bad enough they will bring the big sheets down and just use small ones to keep the ship turned into the waves. Into the waves? Corwin asked. She thought of how the water would break over the bow, hammering the deck over and over again. We race between the swells now milady, running through the valleys between them. But if the winds become too strong and the waves too many we will turn the ship. 
If we roll over and the masts go into the water all will be last. Margaret said as if now an expert in managing ships in storms. My brother said he saw a ship capsize once. Twas a terrible thing. I would think so. Said Corwin, wishing for all the world she could forget what she had just heard. Do not be afraid my lady. Said Margaret kindly. We'll see calm seas again soon. Corwin wanted to share Margaret's confidence but the Albatross was not a well-run ship in good repair. She had long ago decided the captain was a drunk, his crew ill-managed and inexperienced, and his ship very poorly maintained. This ship would sink one day. She simply hoped it would not be on this voyage. She watched Margaret change clothes and then was startled to see the girl move back to the door. I'll take a turn at the head milady and a last peak topsider for we tuck in for the night. You are going above again? Corwin asked in alarm. Never you fear about me milady. I'm as safe as ours as here. She said as she left the cabin. The pair of them shared the captain's private toilet at the rear end of the ship. Like a bottomless chamber pot it dumped waste directly into the sea. At Corwin's last visit she had found it sodden from seawater but arguably much cleaner for having been so thoroughly washed by the brine that came up intermittently through the hole. Venturing there was safe enough, since one was not likely to fall out of the ship as one used the convenience. But Corwin saw no need at all for Margaret to return to the deck. It seemed foolhardy with the storm growing worse by the second. The girl's belief that nothing could harm her, that every minute of her life was part of God's plan was starting to seem the height of arrogance. Corwin wondered if she should stop her. Could she really tell this newfound friend to obey her orders as if she were the maid Christina had hired rather than the companion Corwin had turned her into? That seemed impossible. So Corwin remained curled up in her blanket, her book open before her, and waited for Margaret to come back. She never did. Several hours after Margaret's departure the first mate rapped on Corwin's door. She opened it and he told her, without preamble, that Margaret had been swept overboard as soon as she had stepped on deck. He tersely instructed Corwin to stay below until someone told her otherwise. This was no time for women to be playing up. There was far too much work to be done. As he walked away she heard him say, There be no place at all for women at sea. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart, voice recording copyright 2019 by Nancy Fulton, music by Alexander Shavarev licensed from Pond 5.